From socialservice.se, I'm Jingyao. Today, we're joined by Raina Tan, a postdoctoral fellow at the Saw Sui Hock School of Public Health in the National University of Singapore. We discuss the study of substance use, recovery from addiction, and trauma as risk factors for substance use disorders in Singapore, and his partnerships with community groups and organizations. We also touch on demands for increased research capacity in the community and the importance of data advocacy. So maybe tell us briefly about you know, your research interest, how you study substance use, recovery from addiction, and trauma as risk factors for substance use disorders in Singapore. I think one thing around maybe how I got into this uh, field, you know, was, uh, you know, I've been doing some uh, volunteer work, maybe around like HIV, around substance use, prior to actually uh, becoming a researcher proper. You know, I decided to um, embark on my senior thesis at SMU on uh, HIV discrimination. Uh, you know, I think that that for me was like the start of, okay, you know, like this whole research thing uh, sounds like something I would enjoy, sounds like something and feels like something that, you know, I could be doing for a really long time. You know, I think um, uh, one, one thing that, you know, like spurred that decision was also the lack of data and the lack of, um, um, uh, you know, like uh, literature in substance use, in like HIV. Um, and so I wanted to kind of like, um, you know, add on to that. Um, I, I guess it also kind of mostly ties into, you know, my own like personal experiences, you know, in the community as a gay man myself, uh. And so what areas do you do? So you do a range of, of, you have a range of research interests, but tell us briefly about the research interests and the research work that you do right now. Um, so I just submitted my uh, thesis and that was largely on HIV stigma or rather actually it's just stigma as like a determinant or, um, you know, a correlate of uh, health-seeking behaviors among um, gay, bisexual and men who have sex with men. You know, so I think a lot of my work since my bachelor's uh, days uh, were, was, you know, around HIV testing, around um, uh, other sexually transmitted infections testing. So that has continued on uh, to become my thesis. Uh, but aside from that, I've been doing some work on um, substance use, uh, substance use recovery, sexualized substance use, as well as um, I think lately I've been, um, you know, being in the community space, um, you know, you are exposed to a lot of maybe gaps that appear or become more evident. So I've been working on work uh, with sex workers, um, you know, hopefully a little bit more on, you know, the experiences of LBTQ women as well, um, you know, which I haven't actually done work on, but, you know, I, I hope to at least, you know, bridge some gaps there. You'll hear Raina refer to the COVID-19 pandemic as a black swan event, a term generally used to describe a negative event which is extremely surprising or unpredictable. Raina also says he's a PI on a project. PI stands for Principal Investigator, the person fully responsible for research study. So in, in that sense, in you talking about how you study sexual health and substance use as public health issues, and you talked about how these issues, substance use and HIV as politicized health issues. Could you, to help us navigate, share an example of a recent research paper or proposal that you've kind of worked on uh, recently? I, I guess one thing that was recent and also urgent was this whole thing uh, around the COVID-19 pandemic, right? And I, I would say that, you know, one, the reason why there was political will and, you know, like maybe academic will to really go into it was 
um, the idea of uh, so-called black swan events, you know, basically events that, uh, that might lead to transmission, you know, but might not be expected. Um, and I think the whole migrant worker situation here in Singapore really, uh, you know, put a lot of people um, you know, at the ed edge of their seats, right? And I think one thing that was identified was that, okay, you know, another hidden population or rather underserved population would be sex workers here in Singapore. So at that point in time, um, you know, one of the, the vice deans from uh, the Saucy Hall School of Public Health actually gave me a call um, together with uh, uh, Professor Wong Milian, who is the, you know, the expert in this field, right? So I got involved uh, as a PI for this study uh, on the impact of COVID-19 on sex workers. And so I guess this, is, um, this was exciting and also um, it was very, very much needed, you know, because uh, data, you know, around the world was showing that, you know, sex workers were being left behind, right, in like COVID-19 responses, especially when uh, a lot of settings uh, criminalize sex work. So they are really hidden and underserved. So I, I thought this was a very nice um, uh, opportunity for me to give back and at least, you know, try and contribute something to this field. And I imagine in the course of your work as well, in that project, you talked about the impact of COVID-19 on sex workers. There is an angle where you have to work very closely with community partners. So what was that process like in working with community partners on this particular project? Um, I think it was, it was, it was nice because, um, you know, one thing around, uh, I guess, being in this field, you know, uh, is I, for me, like, you know, I feel more comfortable building rapport rather than, you know, kind of like, hey, you know, I'm here as a researcher. This is what we want to do. You know, then everyone's a little bit shell-shocked, you know, like, they're in the headlights, right? You know, like, okay, you know, you want to do research uh, while I am busy trying to feed people and, you know, give people housing, you know, and then suddenly this researcher comes along. You know, it's not like, it is not unaligned. It, I mean, it is not unaligned, right? You know, in terms of like data advocacy and these uh, issues, but, you know, with the community, uh, that's been so, um, uh, you know, intensely providing services out there. You know, the researcher is a bit jarring. You know, so I think one thing that has really helped is, you know, I've been in this area and I've made friends, um, you know, in the community as well. You know, and you know, even when I'm not doing research on sex workers, uh, I have been, uh, you know, like, I guess, contributing to the wider, uh, you know, LGBTQ community space. And, uh, you know, so that once this comes along, uh, you know, I approach it more as um, someone who is contributing to the community as well as contributing to research. And, and I mean, that was interesting because we had a brief chat before the episode and we sent it. I kind of agreed on the, I think in your words, the privileged position of the researcher, right? And then just now you also mentioned how the position of the researcher can be sometimes jarring in your words. You've worked with different community groups. Um, you've worked with Action for AIDS, Greenhouse, Project X. And think about this, how do you balance the privilege of academia while collaborating with these community groups um, through this research project? I, I, I guess one thing that, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't always very aware of how jarring my presence would be as a researcher. You know, I think one thing that, you know, started this whole journey into um, being, becoming more aware is, you know, like when you start training in research, uh, one thing that we always do and I have always done is to, you know, identify rationales for studies, you know, like identify research gaps. And so like my, my mind is always wrapped around, you know, what, what does the world need? What does society need, you know, in terms of like data, you know, but, uh, you know, very often these gaps are actually not what the community uh, needs right now, you know. And I think uh, being close to the community, these community-based organizations 
you know, they know what is important and what needs to be addressed like right here and right now, you know, in terms of like services. So I, I would say that, you know, I had to learn that, you know, my uh, position as a researcher, you know, it's coming from outside of the community groups, you know, and this, this is a privileged position. Uh, you know, and, um, you know, I, I guess even though I have a certain agenda, you know, I would say as a researcher and, you know, even though I say agenda, it doesn't necessarily mean that it has some kind of like negative or malicious intent to it. Um, you know, it, it just might not be aligned with what is um, urgent. You know, so I guess it, it is really for me a lot of, um, you know, like being a part of the groups themselves, you know, volunteering, um, building rapport, understanding, you know, the complex issues around funding, around uh, capacity building, you know, around uh, how research can fit into the group's overarching goals, you know, and to, you know, as a service to the community rather than a top-down approach, you know, like this is what is needed. You know, I can argue that policy makers need this kind of uh, data to make decisions and all that. But, you know, that is just one small part of community work. On one jump, because one of the objections, and this is something that you probably encounter, where you'll say, hey, being part of the community groups or being part of the community means you are exposing yourself to bias. So how can you be, quote unquote, the objective researcher if you are embedded in the communities, if we are doing research on the ground, how can you bracket your own kind of biases and assumptions and stereotypes or whatever not that you bring into the field? So how do you respond to this? I mean, I share those concerns, but in terms of having heard these these um, objections, but how do you negotiate and navigate around those objections? I, I guess one thing is, you know, I've got, I, I, I kind of see myself as having two spirits, you know, like one a research spirit and one like a community spirit. And, you know, like there is a certain amount of integrity to, to both, you know. And I think one thing, if people ask me if, you know, I can be, a, I can bracket my own like, you know, biases and, you know, and all that, you know, one thing that I would ask also is, you know, like how did you end up doing research in this specific area? You know, like even if it's as un, 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 um, so not even if it's like objective to the max, like, you know, let's say a clinical trial study as a researcher, right? You know, there must be a reason why you're in this particular um, field or, you know, why you are, you are doing uh, clinical trials, you know, because you feel that this is like the best way to generate data, you know, whereas, you know, for me, that I, I, I think that research cannot 100% objective, you know, because there, you know, then, you know, why are you as a human being engaging in it? You know, because that, that alone already lends some subjectivity. You know, I think one thing that I would practice normally is that, you know, I know that my, my, my interests and would lead me to a certain area, you know, my, my own ideas on what, uh, you know, what is needed in the community will lead me to a certain research question. But, you know, from then on, you know, the, the things that I learned uh, during my PhD, you know, shout out to Social School of Public Health, you know, around like biases and, um, you know, the, the, the things that you look out for, you know, that is when my research, you know, like spirit takes over, you know, like I, I won't allow the integrity of that to uh, be undermined by uh, any of my biases. Because uh, I think otherwise I lose credibility as a researcher as well. In talking about the role of the researcher in the community or in the community groups, I mean, in, in, in confronting or rather in navigating how to do research in the community, we also know that a lot of the community organizations come up 
or com- are confronted by a lot of impediments, right? So there are li- limited research funding and capacity financing. Um, some that we've seen and we talked about before is not having access to institutional review boards. That's where you get ethics clearances and committees to clear your project. And as a result, they rely on researchers, as you say, who become gatekeepers and some instances might be a bit jarring. Um, they can't read journal articles. They can't present at conferences or if they can, they, it's always um, by proxy, right? Through a researcher in academia. So what have been your observations on, on these issues on the ground, having worked with these partners and, and community groups um, along this period of time? You know, definitely, I would say that, uh, you know, like I think a lot of times, um, you know, maybe community groups, I feel, you know, like uh, a lot of them uh, might get started out as a response to a certain need. You know, and I think, uh, therefore, you know, a lot of uh, funding that comes along would be directed to that certain need. You know, and I think uh, this you know, in a grander scheme of things, you know, might, um, you know, it is very, I think it's very good to address some of the, you know, inequities around like health and, you know, social conditions and all that. But beyond that, you know, there are maybe structural elements and, and stuff which, you know, might require a little bit more uh, evidence-based kind of approaches, might require a little bit more uh, monitoring and evaluation kind of capacity at the organizational level. And generally, you know, I don't think tote board or, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, other funders, uh, uh, you know, would actually be, be uh, putting too much money into non-programmatic or non-programmatic um, uh, elements of a fund. You know, at least not, not that I have seen. Uh. So I would say that because of this, you know, there also aren't a lot of research officers at the NGO level. You know, only larger NGOs and community-based organizations, you might find a research coordinator. You know, I think like South Foundation has one. Um, I believe that, you know, um, I think, uh, what's, what's that, that organization? It's not TWC2, but, uh, okay, I can't, can't remember right now. But, you know, like, you know, like I, I guess beyond a certain point, you know, having that actually allows you to build capacity in research. You know, it allows you to do evidence-based programs. It allows you to, you know, like find even more funding to do more evidence-based research. You know, un- unfortunately, I guess, you know, if you are a smaller group starting out, you know, that, that jump um, is quite difficult to get to, uh, you know, and there are so many gatekeepers, right? Like you mentioned IRB and all that. Um, you know, if I wanted to do evidence-based research as a community group, you know, I must work with an interested PI or principal investigator at an institution to conduct research, you know, otherwise I won't be able to present my own community groups programs at conferences, uh, you know, publish papers and so on. I, I think what you're kind of alluding to, and correct me if I'm wrong, is kind of this aversion by funders and, and, and um, those who disperse funds in a sense of, of not funding the administrative parts of it. So wanting to channel the funds directly to the beneficiaries and communities, but not kind of understanding that this, there are individuals and structures in between that need to provide or deliver that help to those individuals. In that sense. And part of this infrastructure is also the research part of it. So at a more fundamental level to elevate or to wean off this reliance on researchers means increasing kind of capacity and funding for, for these organizations as well. Would that be kind of like an accurate summary? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I, I think uh, one thing to be fair also is that, you know, I think the demand for, uh, you know, research capacity is not, it's not maybe present at the moment, but, you know, I, I think these are things that also require, um, you know, like maybe some kind of policies as well, right? You know, to do like generating demand for, for such things. 
and so in saying that, right, and bearing that in mind, so that's kind of like the ideal state where we have, uh, where we are at a new status quo where there is demand for research capacity when there's funding. But to get there in between, there's, there are a few steps. So in the meantime, if you were to give advice to someone who, as a researcher, who wanted to work with community groups, what are some of the kind of best practices or what are some of these good things that, that he or she or they should um, adhere to or work better with communities? Because we've heard, you know, uh, we talked previously as well, we, we've heard horror stories about how researchers come to the community group, they do sampling, they do data collection and they, they leave without, you know, leaving any form of, of impactful or kind of useful insights from that. So what are some of these best practices that researchers can, from your experience, uh, try to adhere to that will help this partnership and collaboration? Yeah, actually that's... Uh... That's a good question. I'm just like thinking about, you know, I guess my own like uh, uh, reflecting on my own experiences, right? You know, I would say that, you know, one thing around, I guess, committing to a certain kind of uh, a cause is to not be disingenuous about it. You know, and I think uh, one thing that for at least for me, you know, I'm very critical of myself, you know, but I feel it's very disingenuous to, you know, say that. I want to do this piece of research because I want to help the community. But when an opportunity to help the community in a non-research form comes up, you know, I reject it. You know, and that for me, I feel that I, I become very two-faced. You know? And I think there is a very fine line between rejecting it because I'm busy and also rejecting it because it is not research. You know? Because then I am defining what the value to the community is from my own perspective and not from the community's perspective. Um, so I, I guess that, that for me also translates into, you know, perhaps doing things that are not aligned with my so-called KPIs sometimes, you know, like I do volunteer like as a researcher, you know, I don't come in as a researcher uh, doing research work, but I am a volunteer doing research in the organization, you know, so it, it probably, you know, there have been surveys that, you know, I've applied IRB for, um, you know, the funders say, you know, like, um, you know, we rather this be like an internal report and okay, you know, that's fine, you know, we won't publish it. You know, but I would spend like, you know, it's a mixed method study with like, like, you know, multiple focus group discussions, you know, like hundreds of surveys, but this is not going to be in the public, right? Like, you know, I, you know, I think being okay with these things, um, you know, helps me sleep better at night, you know, and also helps me, I guess, um, you know, feel like I'm truly making a contribution, you know, because these like non-publishable reports do end up, you know, uh, in perhaps like, you know, funders, kinds of um, their own considerations for funding as well. In the previous question to Reina, I mentioned that community groups may not be able to read journal articles. I should have specified that community groups may not be able to access articles, which are often behind paywalls. Together with limited access to ethics review boards and funding, community groups may find it difficult to do research effectively. Later, in the next section, Reina will mention the term post-truth, in public and political discourse, post-truth approaches are often framed by appeals to emotions over facts or knowledge-driven arguments. Well, that's a really excellent point because it's making me think about how we are so wedded to, as you say, KPIs that are tied very directly to incentives within the academic structure, which really doesn't make sense to a lot of individuals who are not in the, in acad- in the, in the academy, right? So what does it mean to publish in a journal? What does it mean to present at a conference? What does it mean to um, get a grant, right? All these things are important for career progression and for um, being in academia, but it's completely divorced from the realities on the ground sometimes. The organizations don't need that to function in that sense, right? And Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to, if I may, um, you know, just round up while talking about your 
personal kind of PhD journey because you've shared a lot about your work experience. And a lot of it, I imagine, is derived from your own journey through the PhD program. And cognizant of the privilege, again, of being an academic in the community, how does your work with community groups and your experience as a recovering substance user tie in with the work that you currently do right now? So I, 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 for me, you know, this, this is a very interesting <laughs> uh, struggle that I had also, right? Because, um, you know, like for me, it's very much like identity politics in some way, right? Because, you know, simply being part of the community, you know, what I had learned doesn't make me part of the, re- you know, part of the community. You know, like, you know, in a sense, I am a researcher that is, you know, a so-called insider to these groups, you know, where I have uh, some so-called, so-called uh, inside knowledge, right? You know, identifying as a gay man or recovering substance user, you know, but it doesn't automatically mean that whatever ideas I have actually reflects that of the community as well, you know, because of uh, my privileged position as a researcher that we've talked about. You know, but, you know, I think one thing that it allows me to, to be is, I guess, authentic around um, my research, you know, which, I, you know, doesn't, isn't like a hallmark of, I guess, a, a good researcher, you know, in, the, in, the, in academia, but, uh, you know, for me, I feel that one of my values in research is, you know, being authentic around, uh, you know, why I'm doing my research, uh, you know, and I think uh, being a part of the community, you know, I have my own experiences that align with participants, you know, and I think one thing that I often see um, are contradictions, you know, in terms of, you know, my own experiences uh, with maybe public discourse, you know, and I think that you know, one way of really bridging that for me has been to, you know, do research that really brings out the narratives that I have felt, you know, on my, in my own experiences. And so I think, uh, you know, this, some people might argue that, you know, it's actually uh, rather biased, you know, uh, but I, you know, like when it comes to qualitative research, you know, and around lived experiences and narratives, you know, this is what I would tell an interviewer, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm not making like shit up. <laughs> Sorry about that. But you know, I, I I guess I I have the benefit of being a researcher uh, and having the tools to actually see things systematically. So while I'm informed by my own life experiences and those of and of people around me, you know, I take the tools that I've learned from the academy and I bring it to the community. And, you know, I craft, a, you know, a story with integrity and as, like research integrity as well as, um, you know, data advocacy angle. You know, sometimes it also means finding out that you're not right. And, that, you know, maybe your experience is a, a deviant one, you know, like not, not aligned with everyone else's, which is totally okay for me. You know, like it, it's humbling in some way as well. One of the, and I thought we could end on this because one of the common threads through your sharing today, um, and you talking about increasing the demand for data capacity um, has been data advocacy, right? So how would you frame the importance of data and research advocacy in terms of advancing um, the state of research slash academia uh, in Singapore and pushing for policies that we might want to see or we think might be beneficial in, in the country? I, I think one thing that, I, I think maybe data advocacy is not as equal, you know, around the world, right? You know, like, you know, they always talk about this like post-truth like era around like, you know, the whole uh, American, previous American presidency, you know, about how facts don't matter anymore. Uh, but you know, fortunately, you know, I think maybe in, in Singapore, uh, at least in service provision and, you know, public health, you know, it's very, very much evidence-based, you know, and I think that is the, they put, that there is a lot of value placed on evidence. You know, I think 
because that exists or that framework exists here, uh, you know, data is very important, you know, and articulating problems don't get articulated if there's no data to say that there is a problem. You know, I think uh, historically, perhaps the structures have not allowed for data from certain areas that have been, uh, you know, exposed to more inequitable like health uh, conditions, health-related conditions uh, to actually be, the, you know, the issues there aren't so well articulated. You know, so I think, you know, I, I, I reflect on my own experience as a researcher doing data advocacy. And I think to myself, you know, how can it be that, you know, I am the one who is, you know, pulling out stories from the community and, and putting it on paper. You know, I feel that that is too precarious and that is too dangerous, right? You know, the power is in the researcher for data advocacy. You know, so while I am still alive and while I'm still in the academy, you know, what can I do to really try and help with capacity building for, you know, community groups so that, you know, it's sustainable and, you know, the, the community groups are empowered to really, you know, create change and, um, you know, articulate for, you know, like uh, resources um, in the long run. Uh.